So I'm talking about the way of the wise men. And as we get towards the end, we'll wrap up some key components of what we saw in their lives that can help us grow in our spiritual walk with the Lord. Now, I'm going to uh, pop a couple myths of the wise men that probably most of you are familiar with. But we'll start out with the, you know, the main myths of the wise men. Uh, the two main myths are, one, that there was three of them. And the other is that they were there at Jesus' birth. Uh, all we know is this, scripturally, is there were wise men. So there's, you know, at least two. We know it's plural. Uh, tradition used to say, not scripture, tradition used to say 12. And I figure we probably pulled that out because there were 12 tribes of Israel and there were 12 apostles and, and God seems to like the number 12. Uh, remember the 12 commandments? I was just checking to see if you're going, huh? Okay, no. He, but he does like the number 12. And so that used to be the traditional thing. Then maybe 12 don't fit on a, on a Christmas card well. I'm not sure. So then we, we brought it down to three, probably because it said they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So there's three guests. We assume three wise men, but there could it's just plural. So it could have been three, could have been 30, could have been 100. We don't know. It's just that it was, it was plural. So uh, they weren't at the manger scene. We'll see that in a little bit. They actually found Jesus as a child. And actually, it's a different Greek word for baby and child, just like we have a different word for baby and child. We might use them interchangeably, but, but specifically, we would never call a baby a toddler. You know, it's just a different choice of words. And so we're going to see in a little bit uh, probably how Jesus was when they came on the scene. But we want to learn some things about them. If you look up the Magi and study them, you'll, they often get described as royal astronomers. Uh, an astronomer, by the way, is different than an astrologer. But we're going to see, though, that it looked like to me that when kings conquered places, they would like bring like the spiritual elite. Now, when I say spiritual, it doesn't mean that it's godly, okay? It doesn't mean it's Christian. It doesn't mean it's, it's, you know, the God of Israel, but spiritual. And so they bring spiritual advisors, and they were wise men. And I guess they probably thought, well, surely somebody, you know, in this crew will have a, an insight to the gods. And so they would pull these, these spiritual people together. Now, astronomers are, it's, it's a type of science in which you study celestial bodies and space and the physical universe. Astrology is where you study the stars, uh, and it's more of a religion or more of a spiritual thing. That's where we get things like you were, you're born under a certain sign, and the sign that you were born under will dictate what your personality in your life is about. And we come up with the zodiac, and when people say, what's your sign? Um, in, in high school, I remember they would always say, what's your sign? I'm serious, this is just me, you don't have to be like this, but I'd say, Christian? And they would they'd be like confused, like, I don't remember that one in the list, because they're looking for something like Pisces, Aries, Libra, Leo, whatever. They're looking for those kind of answers. And uh, it's, I want to say, it's not Christian, okay? I just want you to know that. And so people say, well, I'm going to look to the stars, and I'm going to read my horoscope. If you've ever read a horoscope, it's, it's much like a fortune cookie. Something is going to happen to you today. And then you, throughout the day, you go, something did happen to me. My horoscope was true, so they're generally pretty generic, you know. But they are actually, it's actually anti-Christian. I want to say this clearly. You may know somebody's into astrology and they don't say, I hate Jesus. That's not their heart. But the Bible teaches in Romans 1 that they decided that the knowledge of God wasn't to be retained. To worship God wasn't something they wanted to do. And so they decided they'd worship created things rather than the creator. 
So the good news is we don't have to look to the stars to get information, wisdom, and how to do life. We can actually look to the creator of the stars. So you get an upgrade in Christianity. You get to deal with the creator of the stars, and he can lead and guide and give wisdom. The Holy Spirit's designed to do just that. So the, the wisdom of God is what's more important. So astrology is more like a religion or something spiritual, and astronomy is more of a science. These wise men, the scripture says, by the way, we're going to look at, there's not a whole lot of scripture. We're going to look at some scripture. We're going to look at probably one of the greatest, not probably, the greatest wise men ever in the scriptures. And then we're going to look at some historical stuff. So anything that's historical, you can decide what you want to do with it. If it's biblical, I think the Bible is true. And so we can believe the scriptures. But they came from the east. Now, if you, if you got out a map and you looked at Israel, you'd find most of the kingdoms uh, did come from the east. Now, Egypt's to the west, but to the east, there's like the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians, all these world-dominating, you know, people came from the east. And so they're, these wise men came from the east, the scripture says, probably uh, from Babylon or Persia, and uh, Babylon's actually conquered by Persia. Aren't you glad you came today? You're saying, some of you are like already glazing over. Okay, give me, give me something different. But I think history is kind of interesting. And so these, these wise men were possibly the, the spiritual elite. Now, hear me again. I'm not saying they honored the God of Israel. I'm not saying they most certainly weren't Christians because it's far before Christ was born. So, but they were spiritual. Are you with me when I use that term? It's a very loose term when we say they were spiritual people. And so they would come from the east, but there was a, a wise man that we're going to look at in Scripture that was did love the God of Israel. And we'll see from Scripture, he's a pretty cool guy. And his name's Daniel. Now, Daniel has always like got my respect big time. First of all, you can read it for yourself. There's no bad news about Daniel. I mean, you don't find any dirt on him. You know what I mean? And God apparently does not mind Showing you the dirt. Read about King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, and you'll find plenty of dirt on King David, plenty of dirt on Solomon, plenty of dirt on all kinds of people. You don't find any on Daniel. So first of all, you know, kudos to Daniel for that. The other thing that blows me away is he actually served under four kings and two different empires. Now, I don't know how good you have to be to do that, how excellent you have to be to do that, because usually when administration comes in, it's out with the old and in with the new. Now, oftentimes in, the, in these days, it was like, kill the old and get the new one. Just like, okay, you're no longer needed here. Go find another job. Hey, we'll take care of your future retirement plan. We'll kill you. And so here's, here's Daniel. He served under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he served under Belshazzar, both Babylonian kings. He served under Darius, and he served under um, Cyrus. Four different kings, two different empires. Darius and Cyrus are the Persian Empire. So I've always thought, this guy must have really been sharp. He was never dismissed from his position. And so I want to look at this guy, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him, now get this, to tell him what he had dreamed. Did you catch that? Not to tell him the interpretation, 
to tell him what he had dreamed. And so they say, well, tell us your dream and we'll give you interpretation. No, no, you can, anybody can do that. You can lead me astray, you can lie, you can make something up. He said, I will know that you're the real deal if you can tell me my dream and then give me the interpretation. He was so motivated about this, he said, let me, let me explain this to you more clearly. If you do not tell me my dream, every wise man in Babylon will be cut into pieces. Now, that wasn't just a figure of speech. That's literally what was going to happen to them. They were going to be sliced and diced, made into julienne fries, whatever the commercial used to say. They were actually going to be killed by the king. Well, let's look on. It's interesting. It says, um, where did we go to? I had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So he does finally ask that. And he asks for the, the actual dream. And they say, if you read, want to read the whole story, they say, no king has ever asked this of any wise man. No king's ever asked this. He said, no one could tell you what you dreamed except the gods. And they don't walk among us. And so then it goes on. This is how I know Daniel was a wise man. It goes on and says, uh, so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Because they were part of the entourage of wise men in Babylon. The scripture says Daniel is very diplomatic. And he says, why is the king so you know, harsh on this? And, and uh, he said, just give us a little time. And uh, they had a little time, like 24 hours to figure this out. And so he calls a prayer meeting. It's always a good idea, call a prayer meeting. So he called um, uh, Mishael and Azariah and Hananiah, which you probably know those three better like I do with their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel calls them and says, we need to pray, folks. We gotta seek God because we're gonna be dead if we don't get an answer to this. And so they pray and guess what? God gives Daniel a vision of what the king dreamed and an interpretation to it. And so let's look up on this. It says, then Daniel replied, now I want us to catch a vision for our own lives here. Now I know you may not say I don't work for a king. I'm not, you know, I'm not a wise man. I'm not a Daniel. But I want you to see what we are called to do. This is one of the ways of a wise man. We are called to influence the pagan, hurting, broken world around us with Jesus to, to bring glory to God. You can do that wherever you're at. You can bring glory to God. And so it says, Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked, but there is a God in heaven, hallelujah, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So he tells what it's all about. And then in Daniel 2.48, it says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts upon him. Now, if you go to thesaurus, you look up the word lavish, you look for synonyms to it, it means heaped upon, poured out upon, piled up gifts upon him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. So who's the top wise man in Babylon now? Daniel. Daniel is a wise man. He has, and by the way, you think he got their respect? You think the enchanters, the sorcerers, the diviners, everybody said, whoo, 
thank the Lord, thank the God of Daniel who revealed this because they were all dead without that. So he's won the hearts, I'm sure, of all the other wise men. And when you assist the king, like he did, in great matters, and you come through for him, guess what? You get rewarded. The kings reward you. The wise men that serve these kings, because they serve, that's who they serve, they serve kings, they were rewarded richly for their services. So let me put it like this. They were wealthy. They were well-to-do. They were in good shape financially. This happened to Daniel on probably multiple occasions. And by the way, it only takes the king one time to lavish gifts upon you to make you well-to-do. It only takes one time for you to have more than enough for the rest of your life. But we know at least a second time that it happened to Daniel and probably happened more. And so there's this guy named Rick Renner. I'd never heard of him until a couple of weeks before. And oddly enough, I talked about how I was going to talk about the wise men, and Tim Asher was talking to me. He said, Rick Renner's got this thing about the wise men. I thought, that's funny. I never knew his name till two weeks ago, and it was really interesting. He talks a lot about the historical part of that. But the wise men, when you study them, look them up historically, not always from Scripture. By the way, I always warn you, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at good history. I mean, that's wise, but I always want to stick to what the Scripture says. So if, if the Scripture says something that somebody else says, ah, I don't think that's true. See, it happens all the time. This happens all the time. People in the know say, that's not true. I, I've told you this before. It's been a long time. I used to get this magazine called Bar, B-A-R. No, it has nothing to do with bars. It, has, it stood for Biblical Archaeological Review. These people were archaeologists and loved digging into stuff, and they focused on biblical things. When you read the magazine, you'll find out, I'm not even sure most of them are even Christians. They're just into history, and they're into archaeology. And so it was, it was always noted, first of all, they didn't believe Daniel was a real book because there's kings mentioned in Daniel that there's no evidence of. Guess what they found out archaeologically about 30 years ago? Oh, my goodness. I guess those kings did exist. They used to believe that Daniel, or David's kingdom was not near as big, you know, that it was just exaggerated by the Jewish people. And then they found a city way out of the bounds that had what I would call a headstone or marker that says, this city belongs to King David. And they went, oh my goodness, the Bible is right. It really is as big. His kingdom was as big. So every time they discover something, they never discover something that says, the Bible's not true. They're like, ah, it, it was right again. It was right. So I'll always take the Bible. And we human beings are always catching up. So we catch up with that. Well, he was talking, Rick Renner, about some of the history here. And now this is a supposition, but it makes sense to me. So you can do it the what you want. So here's the king wise men of all Babylon. He's just rescued you. He's obviously going to influence people for, for, well, for God. And so he's revealing his heart, his God. He's giving glory to God. Wouldn't you assume that he is representing God in that region with the, the Jewish writings, with the, his belief system, with his, his faith? And so he's passing along to the other wise men his ideas about the kingdom. He, they're passing along his ideas from scripture, from Jewish literature, from the prophets, from all of that. And if you study those things, guess, guess what you'll eventually find out? There's coming a king. There's a king coming. There's a king that is above any king that's ever existed. There's a king coming to this earth, which probably was motivational to them too, because kingdoms were always rising and falling and rising and falling. So they're supposed to be one day in studying this literature from Daniel and the stories that he tells that there's a king coming. Well, these people were incredibly powerful. 
they have this historical information. They have the Jewish information. They probably passed along from generation to generation, just like we do. We pass our information along. And all of a sudden, there appears an anomaly in the sky of a star. Now, we know they're royal astronomers and astrologists, so they would look heavenward, and they would see the star. And they thought, could it be that this star would lead us to Daniel's king of all kings? And I want you to think for a minute. If you're a royal wise man, and you have tremendous power, you have tremendous influence, you have tremendous wealth. I remember Rick Renner said that his studies showed that the wise men were so influential for generations, and they worked with kings, that, that an endorsement could put a king on a throne, and a disapproval could dethrone a king. They had that much, that much power. We even understand that to a certain degree in our political races, we're always looking for that powerful person who can endorse us. You know what I mean? Because that endorsement can help us you know, win an office. So they had that kind of power. And with that power comes privilege, it comes wealth. We already again know that Daniel had wealth lavished on him at least twice we see in scripture. And so I want to look at this biblical account here, Matthew chapter 2, 9 to 11. The wise men make a stop, if you remember, to King Herod. And King Herod says, I don't know where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born. So he gets his Jewish scholars and says, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? And they say, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Guess what? Those people were spot on. He was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so King Herod, he's a liar, but he tells them, hey, come back when you find him because I want to worship him too. If you know the story, what King Herod wanted to do is come back when you find him so I can go kill him because I don't want anybody to usurp authority over my throne, over my kingship. And they say, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? And they said, after they had heard, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, because he found out Bethlehem, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Again, it's a child. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. So we understand it wasn't the manger. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, these were most likely pagan, probably spiritual people, but when they met King Jesus, and that's, that's a response we should always have, it should break us into worship. They worshipped Jesus. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I, I imagine it's probably more than just those things, but at least that. Now, I'll tell you historical fact as well as a biblical fact. When kings go to other kings, when wealthy people of immense wealth and power go visit other people of wealth and power, they bring gifts. Now, I don't know, but if, if a billionaire was having a housewarming party and invited other billionaires over, I'm going to guess that they didn't bring with them a gift card to Kohl's. Now, by the way, not opposed to that. I love gift cards, love to get them, love to receive them. But billionaires probably aren't saying, hey, here's $10 gift card to Kohl's, and plus this 30% off coupon I give you there. They're going to bring something of, 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 you know, yeah, exactly. They're going to bring something of value to the table. And that's just rich people giving to rich people. This is kings we're talking about here. And so I want to show you the biblical example. Also, when Abraham met the king of Salem, do you remember that? He gave 10% of all he had to him. 
10% of all he had. Uh, money, don I assume it means exactly what I said, all he had. Uh, donkeys, clothes, money, food, spices, whatever. And Abraham was pretty well to do, so it was a pretty good, a pretty good stash. But I want you to see scripturally what I'm talking about here. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. There's a guy named Solomon. Have you heard of Solomon? The wisest person who ever lived, according to scripture. And the queen of Sheba is going to come visit because she's heard about his wisdom, about his wealth, about his opulence, about the beauty of his kingdom, about all this stuff. So we pick up on the story in 2 Chronicles 9, verse 1. It says, when the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions, arriving with a very great, what? Caravan. Arriving with a, not just a caravan, a what? A very great caravan. So here's somebody in power going to check out somebody in power. Somebody with wealth going to check out somebody with wealth. And so it came with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, and precious stones. She came to Solomon and talked with him about all she had on her mind. Now, if you read the whole story, it's really fascinating. You ought to take a moment to read 2 Chronicles 9. She says this. She said, when I heard about your kingdom, your wealth, your opulence, your wisdom, all that, I thought, it, this is so grossly exaggerated, I can't believe it. But I'm going to go check it out for myself. When she checks it out for herself, she says, oh, my goodness, everything they told me was only half of it. This is beyond I thought they were exaggerating like crazy. You exceed everything I was ever told in wisdom and everything. She actually gives praise to God and says, "Your oh, how blessed your people are, how your God has blessed them with your presence and your rulership. Now, I find this interesting. She looks at the servants of Solomon. They are so decked out that she says, wow, basically, this is how I would interpret it, your gardeners and, and cooks and servers wear finer clothes than the royalty in my region. That's, this, this guy was on his game. And so she's just blown away by every single aspect of the excellence, beauty, opulence of, of Solomon's empire. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantity of spices. It's one thing I learned from Rick Renner, too. These spices were actually incredibly valuable. You know, we, we would think, okay, you gave me a spice rack, thank you. But no, but give me the gold. No, these spices were worth more than gold in many cases. And so she gave him 120 talents of gold, large quantity of spices and precious stones. There had never been such spice as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Now, because I'm a curious person, maybe you are too, I go, 120 talents of gold means nothing to me. So I have to interpret that. And I know gold fluctuates, so, you know, if you're one of those engineers that punching it out while I'm talking, go, that's not true. It was actually $300 more than what you said. Okay, roughly speaking, she brought him $168 million in gold. It's a pretty good gift. Pretty good gift. But, I mean, you wouldn't mind that, would you? You know, somebody visited and said, hey, while I'm here, you mind if I just give you this $168 million? I mean, think about $168 million. That would last me two years. That's at least, I mean, that's good, that's good money. Just, just kidding. Although I do have people say, I don't know how I would ever spend $168 million. 
I do. I can spend it with no problem at all, but I, I would hold on to a little bit of it too. Okay. So let's go on. Then it says in verse 12, King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for. All she desired and asked for. I mean, this is how I picture it. You can picture it however you want. I picture she's looking around going, oh, man, Solomon. Dude, you're, you're servants. Oh, if my servants were dressed like that, hey, get her 50 garments like this, all different sizes. We'll ship that with her. Oh, thank you. Oh, man, that artwork's so beautiful. Just round up every, all the artwork on that wall. And we'll ship it to her. And so everything she desired, everything she asked for, and look what it says. It goes on to say this. He gave her more than she had brought him. Wow. Now, I can't help but get a spiritual principle here. We come to Jesus and we think, oh, I've, I've given stuff so much to serve God. No, no, oh, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. You're going to leave with more than you ever gave him, than you ever gave him. Think about our King Jesus. Even Peter one time said, Oh, we've forsaken all to follow you. And he said, Peter, come on, man. He said, no one's left houses, mothers, brothers, sisters, land, whatever. They will receive back in this life a hundred times more than what they have given up for the kingdom. So there's a spiritual principle here. Let's just give. Let's be givers. And we'll get back more. And that's not just material stuff of our hearts, of our time, of our life, of our worship, of our love. And we get back more from God. So it's very likely that these wealthy wise men, I'm serious, I mean, I can't prove this from Scripture, but when I look at all these evidences in Scripture, I look at all these evidences historically, it would seem to make sense that these wise men probably came with a caravan loaded with stuff. Because Sheba went and saw a super wise and prosperous man and said, i got to bring something fit. This is not a trick question. Who's wiser, Jesus or Solomon? Yeah, Jesus. And these guys understood that. And it's my belief that they probably brought a caravan full of all kinds of stuff and showered, lavished Jesus, Joseph, Mary with wealth beyond what we have thought about. And I've believed this for years, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because shortly after the wise men leave, Joseph is warmed in a warned in a dream to leave Nazareth, that's probably where they were at the time, in Nazareth in their home when the wise men came, to leave Nazareth and flee to Egypt. I remember one time I was thinking, how, how, think about if somebody came to you, if the Lord spoke to you tonight and said, get up, head out of the country, go to a land where you don't have a job, you can't speak their language, go there and live. You would say, how can I afford to do that? I mean, I, I don't know how I could afford to do that. Well, I think they could afford to do that because they went to Egypt for probably two, maybe three years, and they had the resources to actually pick up their family, go to a place where they would be unemployed. I mean, he might have found work eventually. And how would they finance that? From the wealth, I believe, that the Magi left them in their home. Now, here's some things you might not know. Now, it's not a secret. When we look at Scripture, you go, oh, I don't know how I ever missed that. But Joseph was just a regular blue-collar carpenter, so he probably hadn't amassed a bunch of money where he says, oh, yeah, we can go for a two-, three-year jaunt over to Egypt and hang out for a few years. we got plenty of money saved up. Probably not. Probably not. It would have been the resources of, of the Magi. 
But when you look at Jesus' ministry, when you look at Jesus' ministry, I want to open up your eyes to something here. Jesus had enough resources, and, and this is my speculation, probably came, my speculation, from the Magi, and also said there are other wealthy women that support his ministry. Jesus is on a three-year trek with these disciples. He's asked them to leave their home and come follow him. He had enough resources to finance himself, 12 men, their families. We probably never thought about that before, but the scripture says if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than a pagan unbeliever. So can you imagine Jesus saying, hey, come follow me. Yeah, by the way, Peter, your wife and kids are going to be desolate. They're going to lose the home. They're going to not be able to find food to eat. It's going to be awful for them, but hey, that's just the price of following me. Jesus was able to support 12 men, their families, plus the other ladies that came along, plus others who were traveling. I never see him have a fundraiser. Never see him talk or beg for money. Where does he get these resources? I, I believe it's probably from the gifts the Magi left and probably from those ladies that are mentioned in Scripture that supported the ministry. He had a full-time treasurer. Now, does anybody remember who the treasurer was? Judas. The scripture says, here's something else, just a, all this has to be held in balance, my friends, so please, let's keep this in balance. There were times where Jesus accepted a very extravagant gift from people. You'll never see Jesus being money hungry, never see him being greedy. He left the glories of heaven. Is there anything you're going to offer him? Go, oh my goodness, I never saw anything so beautiful in all my life. But he would accept at times. A gift of extravagance. My children bought my wife something for Christmas that was very extravagant. Um, I got a T-shirt, but they got a uh, a very extravagant, very extravagant gift. I actually, did get a T-shirt, but it was an extravagant T-shirt. And by the way, I, I tell people I'm not cheap. I'm Scottish. I'm thrifty, so I, I always looking for a deal. I like really nice stuff. It's just I wait till it goes on sale about six times before I buy it. You know, but um, yeah, just just because. My kids may be watching and say, thanks a lot, Dad. It was a $75 t-shirt. I don't know. Would I ever spend $75 on a t-shirt? Absolutely not. But my kids can do it all they want. I don't mind at all. They can spend it on me. Okay. So anyway, they got my wife a very extravagant gift. Well, she, she knew that they were thinking about getting it. She said, I, d I don't want that. It's way too much money. I said, okay, I'm just telling you this. And please hear me. Everything has to be held in balance. I said, there's a time to accept an extravagant gift because somebody just loves you. And my kids were saying, oh my gosh, mom has sacrificially given to us over and over and over and over and over and over. And I said, how true. Yes, I said, how true. I taught her to do that. And uh, I get the t-shirt. But anyway, <laughs> uh, and so I told her, I said, there is a time, because you're not greedy, you don't have to have stuff. In fact, it's horrible to buy for because I don't need nothing. I don't want anything. It reminds me of buying for my dad. Can't, you know, it's very hard to buy for. But there is a time to accept an extravagant gift because Jesus did at times. But but we also see like Darlene's heart, like Jesus' heart, they're not greedy. They don't have to have something. They, she would be fine if she got nothing. She really would. Some people say that, but she really would. So there's a time to receive something extravagant. Well, well Jesus had a, a treasure full time. The Bible says when he received this extravagant gift, this is where this came from in my mind, 
they broke an alabaster box and they they anointed him with it and the treasurer said oh that that's worth a year's wages that should have been sold and the money given to the poor but you know what the bible says judas didn't care about the poor he cared about that money and he controlled the purse and he was a thief so his mind's going ding 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 man if we could have put that money in the treasure i could skim somewhere off the top he they had enough money somehow that he could steal off the top and they still had the resources to meet all their needs. So Jesus had a full-time treasure. Also, there's something else about Jesus that I don't know if I've ever mentioned before. I've known it for years, but he had a tunic that was uh, very, very expensive. I, I know it probably belongs to some of your mind about Jesus right now. No, no. Jesus was a, a dirt poor person with, with patchwork on his clothes and he didn't have nothing. The, the Bible says he had a tunic that was extremely costly. And when they went to, when he was crucified, and they took his garments to sell it. They said, don't tear this one because this is a garment that's seamless. You, you can study it. Very, very hard to make. Very, very expensive to make. And Jesus wore that. And so they said, we're not going to tear this. This is too costly. You know, so they gambled for it. They said, somebody will win this. This will be a prized possession that they'll win. There's something else cool about spiritually. It was like the tunic the high priest wore in the Old Testament. So it's interesting because I, I just I mean this. Jesus is not going. Well, I'm going to dress unless it's the very best. He, you know, his spirit. It wasn't like that at all. Somehow this garment was bequeathed to him either by the Magi, maybe one of the ladies. I'm speculating here. Maybe one of the ladies. That was what she did. That was very costly and very and and gave her money to support the ministry. Somehow he was given a tunic that was extremely costly. My favorite part, though, is it, it's the tunic the high priest wore. It was like that, because he's our high priest. I, uh, Jesus is awesome. He's our high priest. And, and they gambled for it because it was very, very costly. Now, I want just to open up our eyes a little bit. But God doesn't have any problem with wealth or money, because I can tell you Solomon, who probably historically was the richest man who ever lived on planet Earth, was nothing compared to the wealth and opulence that God lives in and, and experiences every day. So, and by the way, even Solomon, all of his glory, was not clothed like a flower of the field. Isn't that amazing? Our God is so awesome. So, the church has created this fallacy that Jesus was poor, he had nothing, and then we start going, wow, he had a treasure, he had, he had this, he had that. Let me give you another little story since we're just blowing our minds today. Let's go to uh, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so he, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, came to him. This is a remote place, he said, and it's already late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, Jesus, answered, you give them something to eat. Now I want you to listen to their reply. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that money on bread and give it to them to eat? Now, pay attention to what it said. It didn't say, well, that would cost half a year's wages. Where in the world would we ever find money like that? We couldn't do that. That would be impossible. It actually appears to me, when I read the story, that he said, okay, is that what you want? Because if you want... We'll go take out the treasury a half a year's wages and go buy everybody bread if that's what you want to do. We just want you to know that's going to be one 
costly meal to feed 5,000 people and their wives and their children. But Jesus, maybe he's Scottish, I don't know. He said, we're not going to spend that money. We'll just take some loaves and some fish and we'll just feed everybody. But it appears to me that there was enough money in the coffers that they could have done that at Jesus' word if he would have said yes. I mean, we're only passing through once in life. Go ahead, go spend the money. Let's feed all these people. But that's not what happened. Well, we say, how do we get this idea about Jesus? We get the idea from a couple of perspectives. One is, is that the scripture says this. The scripture says, he who was rich, talking about Jesus, became poor so that we might become rich. So you say, well, he had to be poor. Well, it's all perspective. Because as believers, we can say, well, he said he made you rich. But I'm telling you, if I ask most of you in this room, are you rich? You'd say, I'm not rich. But God says you are. So it's a perspective. I don't know if you know this or not, and I'm pretty sure you do. There are people on planet Earth that have billions of dollars. Did you not feel it? I mean, single people, not countries, single people who have billions of dollars. Now, in case you've never thought about this, a billion dollars is 1,000 millions. Not bad. They have so much money that they usually have homes dotted around the world. And I'm not talking, you know, 700 square foot homes. I'm talking palatial mansions. They usually have private jets or a fleet of them. They have chauffeurs and cooks and servants and landscapers. And you get the idea, yachts and the list goes on. Now, I think I'm rich. If somebody tells me you're rich, I say, yes, I am. I, I got a nice home. I drive decent cars, eat decent food. I feel rich. I truly feel rich. But I can promise you this. If you took some of these people who actually have so much money they can build spaceships, you are watching the news every now and then, aren't you? And you said you're going to lose all of that and you're taking over Tracy's life. You're taking over his yearly income. You're taking over his cars. You're taking over all that. That is now going to be your life. They would probably say, I am so poor. I don't know what I'm going to do. Because it's perspective. It really is perspective. Jesus left the glory of heaven. Jesus left, I don't know how many dimensions Jesus left. I don't know how many dimensions are out there. Neither do our scientists know how many dimensions are out there. Jesus left all that, clothed himself in human body, sweated. We don't think about this about Jesus. I'm, I'm serious. I'm not trying to make fun. I'm not even trying to be funny. But I bet there were days where he said, Man, I, need to take, I need to take a bath. He had never experienced that before. Hunger, weary, tired. Jesus, he was rich and became poor. That's a, that's a big gap down from where he was. And so we, that's one thing. We also say this, well, the Bible says Jesus didn't have, even have a place to lay his head. That's true. Jesus had a traveling ministry. I don't know if he had a home or not. The Bible doesn't really say. Don't know why he would have needed one. And he didn't think like we think because we're, we're passing through. And he knew he was too. We, we hold on for dear life, but we're really just strangers and foreigners and aliens passing through. We should be like Abraham and look forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. And so it would be like one of my buddies uh, got, of course, friends. They're traveling evangelists. And you sit down with one of my traveling evangelist friends and me. And he said, I got a passion to be in ministry for God. The traveling evangelist probably say, unless God tells you different, pick pastoring. Because Tracy gets to go home to his family every night. He gets to build meaningful relationships with the same group of people. He's not living out of a suitcase all of his life. 
Jesus was living how we would say living out of a suitcase. You know, he was he didn't have that same kind of ministry because he traveled. So that's why I said I don't have a place to lay my head. Hey, this isn't you're not going to go home to your wife every night if you get involved in this ministry. This is different. So we think of him being poor, but he wasn't poor like we think of poor. So I want you to get that out of your head. And we're going to learn something about the Magi here. These Magi, these beautiful people, these wise men, had discovered Jesus, and I love it. They opened up their treasures and worshipped him. By the way, I've said it many times, worship is not, singing a song is worship, but it's not the embodiment of worship. Worship is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, his extravagant mercy to you, that you present your body unto him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, for this is your reasonable act of worship. And just about any place you see worship in the Bible, they fall down on their face. That's what worship is mostly described as in Scripture, and I'm sure that's what they did. So let's learn the way of the wise man, see if we can put some of these things into practice in our lives to grow in our walk with God. The way of the wise man. Number one, Jesus is worth the journey. He's worth the journey. You may say, man, I'm going through a rough patch. Hang in there. He's worth the journey. I have to figure the caravan on their way to Jesus had some bad weather, had some rough spots, got tired of traveling, got frustrated. He's worth the journey. He's worth the journey. He's worth the investment of your time. He's worth the investment of your money. He's worth the investment of your effort. He's worth it. The second thing is use your wealth with purpose. This is Jesus doesn't have a problem. God, I'm serious about this, does not have a problem with you being wealthy. But use it with purpose. And that's where we miss it in the United States, I believe, is we, we don't use it with purpose like we should. I, two things quickly on that. One is I had a boss who had a business who was very wealthy. You wouldn't have known it. He didn't care about things. Just one guy that I knew, he supported on the mission field in Asia with $17,000 a month. That's just one of the people he supported, $17,000 a month. He used his wealth with purpose. He went around, he spoke to Christian business association meetings and told people, because he told me one day, he said, well, I'm so frustrated with his God's anointed some people to make money. They have an anointing for it. You've met people like that. They just, you know, they just make money. It's just like, how do they do that? They, they turn money so easily. And they're anointed to make money. And he had an anointing to make money. He actually was a pastor. Now get this, because we think, if I really love Jesus, I got to be a pastor or missionary or, you know, a worship leader or something. And the Lord spoke to his heart. He said, you're, you're not called to be a pastor. You love me and you want to do something for me. And so we're all taught that's the only thing you can do is you got to get like in some kind of ministry. You're called to be in business. So he got in business and he used his wealth for the glory of God. And he went to these meetings and he would talk to people and say, you have an anointing to make money. But what you're doing is you're retiring at 50. And you're taking all your wealth and you're buying toys. And you're spending the rest of your life, 10, 20, 30 years of your life, that you could use that anointing God gave you to make money to pour it into the ministry, to pour it into the kingdom. But you've decided to play. Now, here's for the rest of us. Now, some, some of you may be in that category, but most of us aren't. So what our minds say is, yeah, you rich people, you need to get out there and use your money for God. Okay, we're all rich. So 
You say, well, I don't have no $17,000 I can give to a missionary, one single missionary every month. I'm not rich. Let me ask the question, could you find $17? There's a million people saying, those rich people ought to take care of this stuff. If those million people said, I can't come up with 17000 but I can come up with seventeen. If a million people came up with $17 every month and invested into the kingdom, if my Hauser math is correct, that's $17 million every month. Every month. What if 10 million people? No, math got too big for me. But you get the idea. So do not excuse yourself. I don't have 17. Do you have 70 cents? I'm telling you, you need to be investing in the kingdom. And by the way, we're not taking up a special offering. We're not building something. I'm just telling you, that's, that's how you prosper. And so you start using that, and God will keep increasing you because you'll be faithful to 70 cents. And then he'll give you 17. And then he'll give you 70. Now, I don't know. Maybe you'll never be like that guy. I said there's one guy he supported with 17000 a month. But don't excuse yourself because you're not rich. And I remind you again, you really are rich. You go most of the places in the world, with your income you have right now, the home you live in, I sometimes am sitting in our sunroom and I'll look at Darlene and I'll say, there's a big percentage on planet Earth that they had the sunroom, they'd be rich. They'd be the richest people in the, in the community. We are rich people. Use our wealth with purpose. Is it wrong to have a hobby? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to, to spend some money having fun? Absolutely not. But when it, when fun and hobbies and, and your wealth is all me, 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 that's not what God wants. Open your arms up. The third thing is worship him. And we I touched on it quickly. Give who you are and what you have to Jesus. That's worship. It's not singing a song. Singing a song is an act of worship, but it's not all what worship is. It's giving ourselves what we have, who we are, what we possess, the talents, whatever it is, to the glory of God, and that's worship. Give who you are and what you have to Jesus. Let's pray together.